What's up, TRP? Thank you for carving out a little bit of time in your day and hitting play and watching this video. Now, this week's teaching, it's gonna feel like a break from our series on the story of Joseph. In fact, he's not mentioned at all. Instead, the story that we'll be rehearsing is about one of Joseph's brothers. His name is Judah and Judah's family. For years and years, scholars viewed this chapter in Genesis, Genesis 38, as an intrusion on the larger story of Joseph. And in some ways, they're right. Remember last week, when we left off, Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers. In fact, it was Judah's idea to do so. And to cover their tracks, the brothers took Joseph's famous coat, his coat of many colors, his ornamented coat, his long sleeve or ankle length coat, whatever it was, they took it and they probably tore it and they dipped it in goat blood and sent it home to their dad to see if he might recognize the coat. And of course he does, it was a gift from him to Joseph. And the identification of this coat, it sends Jacob off on a binge of inconsolable grief and mourning for his favored son, whom he now believes is dead. The author of, of this story says, Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. Literally, this phrase is, I will go down to Sheol mourning my son. Remember, in the Old Testament world, the idea of the afterlife was everyone, good, bad, and indifferent, upon their death, they would descend into the place of the dead known as Sheol. So what Jacob is saying is, I will continue to grieve until I die, and then I will be reunited with my son. But because the author of this story is a master storyteller, he concludes the chapter with a bit of hope, a bit of, of a cliffhanger, really. It says, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So with this line, we learn that Joseph is alive. Now, I, I know most of you already knew that, but just, just pretend that you're reading along for the first time. Joseph is alive. The brothers don't know his fate. His dad, Jacob, thinks that he's dead. But meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar. And then, as you excitedly turn the page and you go to the next chapter to see what's happening, in chapter 38, we get nothing about Joseph. Now, one of my favorite shows is Lost. I've talked about it a lot in sermons. But I remember gathering around the TV each week, following the narrative to see what would happen, to see what would be, what would be revealed. And some weeks you'd get this story that seemed to have nothing at all to do with anything that was happening on the island with the people. And when the, that last sort of black screen would, would hit the TV, you'd think, well, that was sort of a letdown because we didn't learn anything. It, it didn't help us at all. This story is similar. It's an intrusion, they say. It, it only serves to advance the timeline, to, to stall a bit as Joseph is in Egypt in Potiphar's house. It has no real ties to the story of Joseph, they say. But this is wrong. And just to be clear, I'm not the only one who thinks that this way of understanding Genesis 38 uh, is 
like this, it's that it's connected with what's going on around it. I'm not the only one who thinks that. And this is thanks to the work of some brilliant literary scholars. Uh, this has actually become a standard line of thought in, in recent decades. The view that Judah's story was an intrusion on the larger narrative of Joseph has become a bit passe. Before we get into this story, however, I should warn you, in order to understand it, we're going to have to step into a completely different culture with completely different traditions and practices, many of which are going to be super weird for us. They're also going to be PG-13 or so. I'm going to say some things that you might not want your kids to hear. So if you do have small ones running around, maybe put some earbuds in unless you want them to be introduced to some of the things that they might hear at the middle school lunch table a little bit earlier by their pastor, then you know you can feel free to do that. Use your discretion. Now, by now, you know that this traversing of cultural and chronological boundaries has to be the case whenever we open up our Old Testaments, whenever we open up our Bibles, in fact. We will always find ourselves in foreign territory, reading translated foreign languages that depict admittedly foreign customs. But this story, this one in particular, it's, it's different. Um, it's pretty jarring. It's certainly not typical sermon fodder, mainly because of its overtly sexual nature. It's overtly incestual content, you could even say. But surprisingly, these aren't the problems in the story's ancient context. These are problems for us, for us in our context. A good reminder as we set off on this work is something that John Walton, an Old Testament scholar uh, in Wheaton around the Chicago area, he's fond of saying this. He says, the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. So here's what I want to do. I want to I want to read this stunning story in Genesis 38 with you, and, and I'll break in with quite a bit of commentary to help us along. But ultimately, I want us to celebrate this story for its literary artistry, for the intricate ties that it makes with the surrounding narrative of Joseph, and also for the conviction and challenge that we receive when we read this story well. I'd also like us to celebrate its, its oddity and also its application. Okay, are you ready? All right. Genesis 38, beginning in verse 1, it says, At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down. This is the same verb here that will be used for Joseph's descent into Egypt in the next chapter. It says he had been taken down to Egypt. And oftentimes within the Old Testament, authors will, will use similar verbs to make connections with other stories. So Judah uh, went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. Uh, this person is going to become a minor figure within this, within this narrative. Verse 2, it says, There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. Now, this is difficult to track in English. Who is Shua? The dad or, or the woman? In Hebrew, it, the man's name is Shua. The, the dad's name is Shua. We actually don't learn Judah's wife's name. 
unnamed characters are often worth noting when reading Old Testament narrative. So just kind of tuck this away. We don't know Judah's wife's name. We kind of see her character in the story. It says he married her and made love to her. The, the NIV is really helping us out here. Literally, it says Judah saw and he took and he went into her, which is just a really jarring phrase for 21st century Western Americans who are just sitting in the church pews minding their own business. But this is typical biblical language, uh, especially that idea of taking for uh, marriage. Judah is taking a wife for himself. Also, we should note, this is problematic in the Genesis narrative. Not the fact that Judah is, is getting married, but who Judah is marrying. At other points, the author has made a huge deal about Abraham's ancestors marrying within the family. To marry a Canaanite woman, it just invited problems, and that's what's happening here. Verse 3, Shua's daughter, Judah's now wife, became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. And I'm sure there's a, a joke here, like, uh, honey, what do you want to name the child? Ur. Right? Um, it, it reminds me of when Jude was born, our, our youngest, and he's a C-section baby. And when they got Jude and they held him, they said, what's his name? And I said, I don't know, because <laughs> Kate and I still had to convene. We, we didn't know the gender of the baby, so we didn't know what was going to happen. And it was, it was, I felt really on the spot. I was, I was scared, okay? But anyway, they have this kid, and they name him Ur. And then she conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. Then she gave birth to still another son and named him Shayla. A lot's happening here over the course of a verse and a half. A lot of years have transpired. It says, it was at Kazib, this word means deception. It was at deception that she gave birth to Shelah. One of my Old Testament professors used to say, there are no free motifs when you're reading the Bible, by which he meant if the kids are born in a place named deception, it's worth thinking about. It's worth kind of tucking in the back of your mind as you continue to read the story, okay? The story then jumps ahead a significant amount of time, time enough for the oldest Ur to be getting married, maybe 15, 20 years, it's hard to say. But remember, this story is set within the Joseph story. And as readers were led to consider him at this time, uh, sort of running parallel with this story, to consider Joseph in Egyptian slavery and Judah, the one who initiated the sale, we are to, to see him as a man trying to raise a family after essentially killing his own brother. These two stories, uh, as they're framed here, they're going in parallel lines. Okay, so they're, they're kind of happening simultaneously, at least in uh, the structure of Genesis. Now, it says that Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. There's a lot of theological issues with this. Why is the Lord putting people to death? Let's put those uh, questions, those very legitimate questions off to the side for a moment and just focus on some of the other 
poignant questions that emerge from this narrative retelling. We don't know why Ur is killed. We don't know what he did to make him evil in the Lord's sight. But honestly, that's not the point here of the story. I want you instead to focus on the character of Tamar and note specifically her silence. Note her passivity in the story. This isn't necessarily ominous. Uh, The ancient storytellers were terse with details. So it doesn't talk about Ur meeting Tamar. It doesn't talk about the arrangement of the marriage. It doesn't talk about a lot of these things. So it's not necessarily ominous. The story's lack of detail here concerning Tamar's thought process heading into the marriage, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that she wasn't into it. But I just want you to tuck away the fact that in this story, she's not saying anything. She's passive. Things are being acted uh, upon her. Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, remember, Ur is dead uh, and has left a widow, Tamar. So Judah says to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother, which is weird, (laughs) But this is the ancient world, and we are firmly planted in the oddity of the ancient world at this point. Tamar's first husband, Ur, is dead, and Judah is now commanding Ur's brother Onan to impregnate her. This command is based on a practice known as leveret marriage. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 25. Remember, in the story world of Genesis, Deuteronomy 25 is not in existence yet, but we still have some of these ideas that are, um, you know, infiltrating and influencing the story. Uh, Leveret marriage is basically when your brother dies and his wife is childless, the brotherly duty requires you to impregnate her because a child born to the widow will function as your dead brother's offspring. As such, it provided a source of inheritance for the widow, land, cattle, money, and it allowed the name of your brother to continue on. Otherwise, the widow would be left without any protections, uh, and your brother would be left without a legacy, a a name. This, This law, as weird as it is, was meant to be a safeguard for the widow to allow her to have ties to the land and an inheritance so that she could survive, without which she would just be alone. But Onan, he knew all this, and he knew that the child would not be his, and he knew that any children born to Tamar would eat into his own inheritance from his dad. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, with Tamar, it says he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. And just, can we just chalk this up to things that you didn't imagine hearing in a sermon? I, I just, I think we should pause there and just celebrate that. Clearly, uh, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So guess what? The Lord puts him to death also. And again, we have some uh, really deep-seated theological questions that we're wondering, how is this working and why is God doing this? But just those are the wrong questions for right now. A few years ago, believe it or not, this is not the first time I've preached on this passage. And a few years ago, I was preaching on this same passage, and uh, Noah Peterson was was in the room, and he was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13. And when I got to the bit about spilling seed on the ground, Susie told me later that he just looked over at her and said, 
I'm gonna go get some water now. <laughs> and then saw himself out of the sanctuary, which is, is classic. Um, but in our culture, right, onanism functions as a euphemism for masturbation. As you can see in this passage though, that's not what's happening here. Uh, what we have is, is something very different. Um, instead, we will use the Latin phrase for the euphemism of what's happening in this passage to help us along, and that would be coitus interruptus. The graphic nature of this story, it's unique in the Old Testament, but the idea behind Onan's coitus interruptus is, is not unique. In fact, in the book of Ruth, uh, we have Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. They're both widows. They're both left without protections. Um, they, they both don't have ties to the land. They don't have any safeguards. So what you have in the second half of the story is Ruth attempting to procure a husband with Naomi's help so that the two of them are not left alone to die. And of course, she finds Boaz, but in order for Boaz as to redeem her, he has to go through a lot of um, cultural uh, sort of situations. Um, in order for him to be able to redeem her, he has to talk to a closer relative first to see if the closer relative wants to redeem Ruth. And he doesn't because the closer relative doesn't want to endanger his own estate. So it's the same idea here that's informing Onan, except the guy in Ruth isn't engaging in coitus interruptus. Uh, this, this, it might be difficult for us to understand, but think about the trauma uh, that this would have occasioned in Tamar, who again is silent about all of this. She's been silent about the death of her husband, Ur. She's been silent about um, Onan and the, the Leverett marriage. She's been silent about his deception and his consequent death, as we'll see. He, she's been silent about the lack of care provided for her by Judah, her father-in-law. In verse 11, it says, Judah then said to his daughter, uh, daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, man, everybody who touches this woman dies and maybe Shelah will die too. So I need to protect him. So I'm going to send Tamar away to live in her father's household. In this context, this is, uh, this is nothing short of an abandonment of his family. Tamar is Judah's family now, but he sends her back home to live in shame. Old Testament scholar Robert Alter writes, the childless Tamar is not only neglected, but must submit to a form of social disgrace in having to return to her father's house after having been married twice. To put it more simply here, Judah is not being faithful to Tamar. The story continues here and it says, after a long time, Judah's wife, Judah's unnamed Canaanite wife, the daughter of, of Shua, she dies. There's a lot of death in this passage. When Judah had recovered from his grief, <clears throat> note the contrast between Judah and his dad, Jacob. Remember in the last chapter, when Joseph died, Jacob was inconsolable. He said he would go down to Sheol grieving and mourning. But Judah, uh, he's lost two sons. He's lost his wife and he's fine. 
It's the same verb here that's used in both of these stories. Jacob would not be nachamed, but Judah was nachamed, comforted. So he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep with his friend Hira, the Adulamite. <laughs> sheep shearing was a time in the ancient world, drinks, food, feasting. It would make sense for Judah to want to go to Timnah for this large party, for this festival, in order to get over the death of his wife. And you can just hear his friend Hira now. Come on, man. What you need is good old-fashioned sheep shearing, drinks, dancing, women. You gotta, gotta, you gotta get back in the game, Judah. This is what's happening here. Now, meanwhile, Tamar hears about this entire plan. Your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. Code for party, festival, good times, drinks and brews, whatever. So she takes off her widow's clothes. There's a lot of clothing happening here from Joseph's coat in the previous chapter to um, Jacob tearing his own clothes to now Tamar taking off her widow's clothes, which identified her in public as a widow. And she's covering herself with a veil to disguise herself. And then she sits down at the entrance to a name. A name here means two eyes. There's not a lot of seeing happening in this story. But she sits down at the entrance to this place, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was old enough to be her husband, but Judah had no intention of giving him to her. She was left alone. There's a lot on the line here for this silent widow. She sees that her father-in-law is not going to provide for her. So she begins to scheme and plot as to how she can get the things that she needs to survive. Also, again, um, just this idea of, of garments. There's another one that I should mention as well. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the father of Judah, wears Esau's clothes to trick his dad into getting a blessing. Joseph's coat dipped in blood used to trick his dad. And now Tamar is clothing herself as a prostitute to trick Judah. There's just a lot of deception that's happening here which again, we kind of had this precursor as we um, heard of the birth of Shelah in Kazib. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face, which is weird because prostitutes didn't necessarily cover their faces, but he couldn't recognize who this person was and not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said some, some really romantic things, you know, some really sweet things, really, some really coy and bashful things. He said, come now, let me sleep with you. This is very pointed in the Hebrew text. It's like just command after command. And here's an interesting note on sexual ethics in the Old Testament from one of my professors, John Goldengate. He says, the Old Testament has firm rules prohibiting adultery and implying disapproval of sex between two single people, but neither sort of rule quite forbids the action of Judah and Tamar here in this passage. Come now, let me sleep with you. Now, to this very romantic and bashful and, and coy, come now, let me sleep with you. Uh, Tamar responds, and what will you give me, kind sir, to sleep with you? I'll send you a young goat. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why. I've got Judah talking like this in this reenactment, okay? But just, just go with it. Just, just treasure it, you know? 
I'll send you a young goat, he says. And it's interesting to note here that this encounter, it must not have been premeditated because Judah doesn't have any cash on him, so to speak. It seems that this, uh, this entire thing was something of a surprise and you could just imagine Hera off to the side. Hera's a bad influence, just saying like, hey, 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 look at her. Why don't you get back on the horse? That, that sort of a thing. Now, Tamar responds to this. I don't work for, for credit, kind sir. So what will you give me as a pledge? And Judah responds, what do you want? And she says this, your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. Now this is huge. Tamar, the once silent and passive character. She's silent and passive no more. She's basically asking for Judah's driver's license and credit card. These these symbols are important in the ancient world. And then it just moves on like it's no big deal. So he gave them uh, to her and he slept with her and she became pregnant. The Hebrew implies that the transactional nature of this encounter for both. It's just like one thing after another that's happening. And then she leaves and takes off her veil and puts on her widow's clothes again. It's just like this transaction of he gives them to her, he sleeps with her, she becomes pregnant, she takes off her veil, she puts on her widow's clothes, that that sort of um, one thing right after the other. And meanwhile, Judah sends the young goat back by his friend Hira, the Adulamite, in order to get his credit card and his, his ID back. But the, the woman wasn't there. So... Hira asks the guys around town and said, where is the the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at a name? You can note here that uh, the the word that's being used to describe Tamar is is different. It's a bit more acceptable. It's it's something that's not just crass uh, as Judah has referred to her. She's she's a whore. She's a prostitute, whatever. Like that's different than a shrine prostitute that uh, is being described here. But the, the men of the town say there there is no shrine prostitute here. What, what are you talking about? So Hira goes back to Judah and says, I didn't find her. And get this, the guys at, of the town say that there is nobody there uh, that we're describing. Maybe this seems like a figment of our imagination. They had no idea what I was talking about. So Judah says, well, let her keep uh, what she has or they're just going to laugh at us and think that we're ridiculous. That We got duped out of my driver's license and my, my credit card. Really, this isn't Hira's issue, but still. Um, after all, he says, I did send you with the young goat. Like I, I was a man of my word here, which is interesting, right? Because he's not a man of his word because he hasn't done the thing that he said he was going to do for Tamar. But here he's, well, I did send the goat. Good for you, Judah. You, you kind of missed the boat here. Um, now, we should have a mini conversation about what a shrine prostitute is. Uh, basically, some view this identification, uh, the shrine prostitute, the Kadesha, as having some sort of connection with a religious sanctuary. It, it may have also been uh, someone who has connections with a fertility cult. So sexual relations uh, within a sanctuary setting were not necessarily ruled out, but evidence for this is very, very, very sketchy. There's not a lot to go on. One of the bigger things that we are going on here is the route there for um, Kadesha is Kadash, which links to this, uh, to this word family of, of holiness, okay? Um, again, the, the, the important thing here is that what Judah is using to describe Tamar is not what Hira is using to describe Tamar. 
okay? She was simply someone who was available for sex for Judah, and Hira sort of cleaned that up when he was talking to the other guys around town. Now the story moves ahead, and about three months later, enough time for a woman who is pregnant to be seen as pregnant. It's told to Judah that your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she has become pregnant. So Judah says this to her very callously, bring her out and have her burned to death. Again, Robert Alter says the precipitous speed of Judah's judgment without the slightest reflection or call for evidence is is absolutely breathtaking. Add to this the fact that the, the Torah does not specify any punishment whatsoever for prostitution, nor does it recount any stories of a prostitute being punished. Judah really just wants to get rid of the problem, wants to get rid of the woman who has killed his two kids. He, he, he wants to get rid of Tamar so that Shayla does not have to have this impending threat over his head anymore. And now he's jumping at the bit to do so. Now, in order to understand what happens next, we've got to flash back to a, a, a important moment in the last chapter in Genesis 37, and we've already hinted at it. But in the story of Joseph and his brothers, remember Judah has initiated the sale of Joseph. The brothers take Joseph's special coat, his coat of many colors, his ornamented coat, whatever, and they tear it and they dip it in blood and they send it back to their dad with this note, Hakar na. It's a command in Hebrew, and it really just means recognize. Hakar na. Please recognize, they say, is this your son's coat? Okay, that's the background. Now, as Tamar was being brought out, ostensibly to be burned, she sends a message to her father-in-law, to Judah, to the one who sold his brother into slavery and left him for dead, to the one who bargained a, a price of 20 pieces of silver for his own flesh and blood's life, to the one who sent his brother's coat home to his father, soaked in goat blood and soaked as well in his own deceit. She sends a message to Judah saying, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. Hakar na. Please recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. <laughs> wow. These, these stories of Joseph being sold into slavery and Tamar and Judah, they're linked by the use of this, this imperative, this command. Please recognize. Now, now Judah clearly recognizes them. It's his, his, his ID and his credit cards. And he says, okay, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her my son Shayla. And then it says that he did not sleep with her again. This story is crazy, right? It's, it's not something that we would look upon and say, ha, 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 yes, go and do likewise. Because the customs, they're so bizarre and, and they're they're kind of gross, and that the sexual ethic is, is very different and pretty scandalous, comparatively speaking. For an ancient audience and, and for, for Judah, Tamar's conduct, however, has been righteous, while Judah's has not been righteous. But this, this judgment is not because Judah had sex with someone that he believed to be a prostitute. That's not really the problem here. And it's not because he had sex with his daughter-in-law, even though the Torah will go on to outlaw uh, such improprieties. But in the story, Judah is not as righteous as Tamar because 
He didn't do what needed to be done for his daughter-in-law. Not only did he withhold his son from her, but he sends her back home in shame. He abandoned his family. And when he was called out on it in this story, it, it changes him. And we know this because later on, as the story continues to unfold, Judah becomes a brother who will protect, who will care for his youngest brother, Benjamin, when, when his feet are to the fire. He's no longer scheming. He's honorable. There's a transformation in his life. And for some, they'd say it starts here with this story, with Tamar sort of putting it to him. The story then concludes when, when the time came for Tamar to give birth. She gives birth to twin boys. And we have this weird sort of uh, delivery moment. As she was giving birth, it says, one of them put out his hand and the midwife tied a scarlet thread around his wrist to identify who the firstborn would be, saying this one came out first. But then once that happened, he draws his hand back and the other brother comes out first. And the midwife says, so this is how you have broken out. And the verb there in Hebrew, Perez, it means to break out. So he was named Perez. And then the other brother with the scarlet thread came out and he was named Zara. Now, quick question. Perez is in which famous Old Testament character's family line? And follow-up question, if you got the first one right, in which famous New Testament character's family line is David? Which is the answer to the first question. We're talking about Jesus here, right? So we have Perez who's a part of David's family line. David's family line is a part of Jesus's family line. In fact, in, in Matthew, Jesus's family line in, it includes, famously includes Tamar and Rahab and Ruth the foreigner and Bathsheba and Mary. It includes these women who you would not expect to be present within the family line of, of anyone, really. Like, it's not uh, typical in genealogies in the ancient world to include the women. But here in Jesus's genealogy, we have these women who, who aren't probably thought of as um, characters to, to model oneself after. Tamar, the daughter-in-law here who has sex with her father-in-law, Rahab, the prostitute, Ruth, the foreigner, Bathsheba, who was raped by the king, and Mary, the 13 to 15-year-old virgin. Uh, within the story, there's just these, these oddities about their inclusion in the family. But for Matthew, he says, these are the ones that we should celebrate. This story, despite its oddity, it's, it's fantastic. It's not just wedged into the Joseph narrative. It has so many hooks into different aspects of, of the story. It's, it's important that it's placed here for many reasons, not least of which because it sets the tone for Judah's transformation. But I'd also argue its message for us isn't really that bad either. Even though it's, it's not a, a, a go-and-do sort of story, stories in the Old Testament rarely are, but it's more than that. It's a, it's a get trapped in your brain story. It's a have a conversation with this sort of story. It's a what do we learn here story. And I would encourage you just to consider it, to, to turn it like a jewel in the light and to see it from different angles and ask, what might be here for me that I need? 
we have this strange inclusion and this strange story of a woman who fights for her survival and a strange coming to terms with his own life that happens with Judah. We have this weird New Testament conclusion that the atrocities of all of this led to the birth of a savior. At least I'm hopeful that what we see here is a family history that has plenty of room to include us as well. Thank you.